Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. We're here today with Dr. Gates Brown, Associate Professor in the Department of Military History at the Commander General Staff College. Dr. Brown, welcome. Good morning. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about your uh, academic background, what you study, what you do, where you did your research. Yeah. So I mainly focus on Eisenhower and the early Cold War period. I went to the University of Kansas for graduate school, and the reason that I picked Eisenhower was the archives were close. And I wasn't a historian by background, so when they told me I had to find some place to research that was relatively easy to get to, I thought Abilene made sense, and Eisenhower was an interesting character to research. Okay, and uh, what do you teach here in terms of electives at the uh, Commander General Staff College? So mainly I teach 699 and 698, which 699 is Evolution of Military Thought, and 698 is the Great Campaigns, those are the SAMS prerequisites. I have taught the Global War on Terror elective and the Vietnam electives, but mainly year-to-year I teach the two SAMS prerequisites. Okay, and tell us a little bit about your uh, kind of academic and professional background before you got to DMH. Oh, wow. So I, I was in the Army for a while, about seven years, and when I came into the Army, it was I was an Army lieutenant, so it was thinking being on tanks for my whole career, good times. And then they sent me to Korea where they had tanks, but I wasn't on a tank. I was a maintenance officer. And then they sent me to Fort Bragg, which had no tanks. And then I went to Iraq and had an unfortunate encounter with a roadside bomb. And that shifted my military career. And they said, well, you're not going to be an armor guy anymore, so we've got these other opportunities. So that's how I got into military history. And then I figured out, well, I better find something to research because apparently they don't just accept math undergrads. So hence getting to Eisenhower and all that. So that's that's how I came to military history. It wasn't something that I always, I was always interested in it. Just as a professional officer, you have an interest in military history, but it wasn't formal. When I had the opportunity to actually have gainful employment with military history, I thought, okay, it is time to get more serious with that. So you, you said you're a specialist in, in post-war America, kind of early Cold War period, mm-hmm. Eisenhower. What, what do you like about that period as a period of history? Growing up, you think that the middle of the 20th century is this time of there's consensus, I guess for lack of a better term, that everybody seems to be happy. When you watch movies from the middle of the 20th century, you've got... Cinderella, you've got some of the Pinocchio, you've got some of the iconic cartoons, but then you also have some other live action movies that just seem to imply, oh, everybody's happy in the United States. And I thought, well, that would be kind of an interesting period because that can't be the case. And so the more that I look into it, you realize there's so much intention. To say nothing of the Cold War, but just domestically, there's so much intention about, well, what happens when you have all these different people groups that are trying to understand their place just after a war 
that really is driven by racial ideology, and then you come back to the United States and you realize, well, just get back in your place, and nobody wants to do that necessarily. But then there's the whole Cold War piece that is also driving change. And so you've got different facets of the Republican Party, which Eisenhower is going to be a Republican president. And one side wants to kind of pull back from the United States, from the world order, and the other side says, no, we have to be actually this force that's trying to keep the Soviets at bay, but also try to create an international system that's more in line with U.S. values. But those U.S. values about personal autonomy, personal liberty, and equality can sometimes be in tension in the domestic side. And so that's what I really find interesting about it is the 30,000 foot level is everybody's happy, this is great, post-war period, there's a boom, and then you start to peel back the onion and you realize, man, it is not nearly as simple as that. So how do you square those ideas in your research and writing and understanding of this period? On the one hand, we have, you know, it's the golden age, it's the golden age of Hollywood and all of that, prosperity as you mentioned. On the other hand, you have the McCarthy hearings, you have the Cold War, you have the questions of identity, right? I think this is the time we're adding under God to the pledge. Mm -hmm. yep. So how do you square those kind of conflicting ideas of America? Some folks don't think they conflict, right? And then you talked about McCarthy and that there, there's the, the right Americans and the right Americans are on the right side of everything and they understand the need to go along and get along and then there are people who just can't be happy. And what I think is interesting is the folks that from one side just can't be happy, they're calling the nation to try to live up to its ideals. And that is a tough thing to do because your ideals are gonna require perfection, but because we can't be perfect, you're always gonna miss that. And I don't necessarily see a way to reconcile that as much as that conversation is something that we're never gonna get away from. And it's one we need to accept, that we have as part of our founding construct this perfect set where everybody is equal, everybody is able to try to pursue life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. But man, that's a high bar. And it's okay to fall short of that, but you can't be complacent. And that, that's where I see that tension, is one side is saying, we've kind of done enough, let's just be okay with where we are. And the other side continues to advocate and continues to agitate for the nation to live up to its promise. And you mentioned as well you've taught in the Vietnam era. So how does Vietnam kind of disrupt or feed into this developing American ethos? Oh, man. So in, in the 1950s, you talked about McCarthy. And it's not that he had something to go on. It's not that he's making of everything out of whole cloth. Most of it's completely made up. But there are, in fact, Soviet sympathizers and Soviet agents inside the United States. There is a communist movement in the world that's seeking to expand, seems to be gaining progress, whether it's solidifying Eastern Europe or the fall of China and then into Southeast Asia. So you can look at the map and see communism, which is antithetical to what the United States wants and antithetical to our founding ideas. It's clear that there's this tension. And so with Vietnam in the beginning, it seems like an extension of what the United States is trying to do in Europe, and that is make sure that people who are relatively free can maintain some sense of their own autonomy. And that, I don't wanna say that that sells well, but it briefs well. However, as the conflict continues, 
some of those tensions start to become a little bit more apparent in that the regime that we are helping to support that is supposed to be allowing that autonomy turns out a lot more oppressive, a lot less democratic than we had hoped. And then we really knew, well, we knew at the time it wasn't democratic, but anyway, in the the popular conception of it, you start out, we're on the side of good, we're on the side of right, and then it turns out the people you're supporting don't support your ideals. That's tough. And then you have a series of coups where military governments start to continue this oppression. And now the conversation at home is, if we're on the side of good, then how can we be on the side that is oppressing their own people? Combined with a really good information operation by the North Vietnamese, who go counter to a lot of Bolshevik ideology in the 30s, and some of the Stalinist discussion right after the post-war period where you can't have peaceful coexistence. In the 50s with Khrushchev, there's some discussion of peaceful coexistence that's going to fall apart with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which again shows this the real tensions in the system. But the North Vietnamese continue to say, we have no beef with the United States. We have no desire to export communism. If you would leave us, we would never come to you. And so that starts to become harder and harder to reconcile. You've got an authoritarian government in the Republic of Vietnam that is not aligning itself with U.S. values. You're fighting a people who are seemingly asking you just to leave them alone. And it's harder to see how that imminent threat of communism that seemed to be so urgent in the 50s and early 60s, as you start to get into later 1960s, it seems like a a peaceful coexistence, or at least a stable status quo, is achievable. And so it's harder to see the urgency. And once you don't have that urgency, it's harder to it's harder to make it acceptable for things like the draft, which is an intrusion on personal autonomy. It's okay in an, an era of urgent national security. It's less acceptable when that threat isn't as as urgent. Well, it's not World War II, basically. Yeah, well, it's not World War II, or also it's not, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis really throws into contrast this. We talked about the idea of consensus, the 1950s, and relative peace. It's not relative peace when you have nuclear weapons aimed at the United States 90 miles off the coast of Florida. And so for a time, that'll carry you through that what this Soviet regime, which seems to be not necessarily commanding, but directing all communist or at least communist sympathetic regimes. So everything's coming from Moscow. But as you start to get to the end of the 1960s and you realize, well, no, there's the Sino-Soviet split. So you can maybe work with China to the detriment of the Soviet Union, or maybe you can have some common cause with the Soviets to try to, to wedge off the Chinese. And then, well, what are the Vietnamese? Are they necessarily taking direction from Moscow? Are they taking direction from Beijing? Maybe Hanoi is trying to chart a different path. And so it all starts to kind of break apart where this urgency and the solidity of a communist world starts to, from the U.S. perspective, it starts to break apart. It's not that it was ever as solid as we projected, but it seems that way, right? And so all of that kind of comes to a head Combined with some of the things we talked about in the 1950s, people continuing to agitate for the nation to live up to its ideals, that's only going to increase. And so all of that kind of comes to a head and people start to say, why is it so urgent that I sacrifice my personal safety, like you said, when it's not to the extreme of World War II? If it was World War II, okay. But this doesn't seem to meet that criteria. 
Yeah, so basically, it sounds like you're saying that the schizophrenia of America domestically becomes the schizophrenia of America in foreign policy as well. In a way, yeah. I mean, I, schizophrenia is kind of a loaded term. I, right. I think that you know, holding two two ideas in tension, and this is um, problematic. We don't want to get dialectical, right? That <laughs> the, the, the United it. States is dialectical in a way. That that's not it. But but these ideas that you, in order to have perfect individual liberty. And that's anarchy. That's complete libertarianism. It's hard to do that in a nation that has a strong federal government and a nation that's the size of the United States. So you have to have some compromise of those things. Well, to compromise, you're going to have to set some interest above other interests. And, and how do you work that out? And so what I see is in the 50s through the 60s, it's not, it's not an inversion. It's more that Certain groups had been able to ensure their interests were respected or at least represented well in policy. And in those two decades, you have other groups being able to inject their interests and having a, a larger seat at the table or at least a, a bigger part of the discussion. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, switching gears a little bit, you, you also do work on the administrative side of the House here. So you've oh. worked... Uh, to run the electives program, you now are um, curriculum, curriculum master, curriculum yeah. developer. So how does that help kind of inform your teaching? Oh, so one of the things that I did not appreciate when I started, I, I knew I needed to get smart on military history. And because I didn't have a history undergrad, I hit grad school and had I got a lot to, to learn. And my graduate education was really focused on U.S. history. Makes sense. We don't teach U.S. history purely. In H100, we start off with European history, and then we'll get to U.S. history. So I had to get smart on that. And that's really the first couple of years I was here. I was trying to just get smart on our curriculum. And I didn't understand how we could bring in other parts of the curriculum to support our instruction or how our instruction can help clarify or help give a better idea of application to other parts of the curriculum. And that's one of the things that, being the curriculum developer, I get to go to a lot of interdepartmental meetings, and so I get to see how that curriculum all comes together. And for the students, they do get it in these, these bite-size increments of classes, but it really does hold well as a cohesive unit. And I think that's one of the things that's really improved my teaching. For the electives, it students always want to they want to know how they can get deeper, especially for things that interest them more than, than others. And that's just some classes are going to be more interest than others. And so they're going to ask, hey, what's something I could do? And in the curriculum, we've got call outs in every lesson. However, that's not always readily apparent. So being the electives director, I was able to kind of get a holistic view and be able to, to let folks know if you're really interested in this topic, I got a couple electives that you really need to look into. All right, perfect. Dr. Brown, thanks for being with us today. Thank you. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.